From WPVMLP in Asheville, you're tuned to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Soccer Mommy.
One of the stranger parts of this ever-drawn-out coronavirus lockdown, for me at least, has been always seeing my neighbors. Working from home, I normally spend most of my days posted up on my front porch with my laptop, and the streets are empty, the driveways are empty, and it's as peaceful and quiet as a prairie. But these days, all of the neighbors are home, working in the garden, fixing a car, or just out for a walk with their dogs. I find myself doing more socializing with the people in my immediate vicinity than I ever have before. We've started swapping seeds and plant starts, and I've even found myself taking over some leftover curry when I made too much. When journalist Anna Nguyen moved from Montreal to Cambridge just a few weeks before the pandemic, she found herself in a new city, in the throes of a lockdown. And that's when she started baking for the neighbors. Cinnamon rolls. I don't often talk to my neighbor. He lives downstairs, and we make conversation whenever I run into him. He's usually at work and doesn't return until 6 or 7 in the evening. On many weekends, he drives to visit family in New York. But for the last two months, he's been working from home. I hear him talk on the phone throughout the day. One night, I had made some cinnamon rolls. As part of a neighborly custom, we'd text our neighbor and ask if he wanted some baked goods. He seldomly declined. I took a couple downstairs. I hadn't talked to him since the governor had declared a state of emergency in Massachusetts on March 10. He opened the door, revealing only his kitchen space as I peered in. I just made these with cream cheese frosting, I said, handing over two warm rolls wrapped in aluminum foil. This gesture was a bit odd, as I was trying to maintain a generous distance between us. I tried very hard to be cleaner than usual. I washed my hands often, I said slowly, trying to reassure him. He laughed. We both asked each other how we'd been doing. He called his family often, he said. I told him my mother's trip was canceled at the last minute. I headed back upstairs. If you guys need anything, let me know, he called out. You let us know as well, I echoed. Later, as I took my first bite, I found the texture of the roll odd. It was a bit too dense, perhaps a bit dry, even though I had underbaked them. After a moment, I asked my partner, does this taste odd to you? He shrugged. Maybe the flour isn't good, he said. He had finished his roll. Or maybe the yeast is old. Our yeast was purchased in Montreal. We had brought it when we relocated to Massachusetts. I think I purchased the 113-gram jar because I had made cinnamon rolls for a friend for Christmas. We've used it plenty of times since then, but it's a huge jar. It's been living in the refrigerator for the last four months. The next day, when I saw our neighbor outside, I apologized for the disappointing rolls. Maybe it was the brand of flour or the yeast was too old, I repeated my partner's words. He gave me a quizzical look. I thought they were delicious, he said, almost in awe. I've made better ones before, I mumbled almost to myself. Louder, I said, I'll make another batch. Hopefully, they'll be better. By that time, a month in our quarantined lives, the grocery stores had been out of yeast for weeks. I occasionally was lucky enough to grab the last bag of flour, but yeast was nowhere to be seen. Cinnamon Raisin Bread I brought an extra loaf of cinnamon raisin bread with me to Pho Osha. A week ago, when I picked up takeout, I had scheduled an interview with an employee to discuss her experience working at a restaurant for a research project. On the very far left of the dining room, four tables were pushed aside, 
four sheets of different neon-colored paper were taped on the top of each table, designating four delivery services in handwritten block letters. All four tables were empty. I walked up to the middle of the room. Two long tables were pushed together to indicate a closure between the front-of-house employee and the customer. There was even a printed sign of two people in a measured space of two meters apart. She peeked her head from around the corner. She must have been in the kitchen. Hi, I greeted, quickly sliding the flower-printed mask down to my chin. Do you remember me? Neither of us had given our names when we made the informal interview date. She told me just to swing by. Yes, of course, she answered through her own mask. She came closer to the table setup. I covered my mouth and nose again. I made a cinnamon raisin bread, I said, handing it to her. The recipe had yielded two loaves. If you want it, you can share with the other employees here. My partner had asked what I would do if she declined the bread. I told him I would just take it back home. She looked down at the aluminum-wrapped gift. I cleaned my hands often, I volunteered, suddenly feeling foolish that I hadn't even asked if she or her co-workers had even wanted bread. I'm not sick, so I think it's okay. Where did you find yeast? She asked, looking up. I make bread too, but I haven't been able to find yeast anywhere. I had some before the pandemic, I said. I haven't had to purchase any yet, but I don't think the bread rose enough. It may have been too cold in the kitchen, or the yeast is not good. She shook her head. I'm sure it'll be delicious, she said. Thank you so much. Her hands were wrapped protectively around the loaf. We chatted for about 30 minutes, sometimes with masks on or at a safe distance when we couldn't hear each other. At the end, we exchanged phone numbers and names. Molly suggested an exchange of baked goods. She also enjoyed baking and wanted to share some of her treats. Sourdough bread. About a week after the interview, Molly texted and asked if I could come over to pick up her coffee cake. It's real coffee cake, LOL, not American version, she wrote. It didn't rise very much, and it had been resting in the Blue Crusade for a few extra hours. Can we drive over in an hour, I texted. The bread is not rising. No problem, she answered. By 4.30, the bread was finally out of the oven. It's not very pretty, my partner remarked, looking at it critically. It did look smaller and denser than his previous ones. He wrapped it in a towel and placed the warm bread in a basket. We drove ten minutes to her home. Her home was so close, we could have walked. Before I could put on my black cloth mask, Molly approached the car. She was also wearing a mask. I opened the car door, and she carefully presented a beautifully decorated chocolate cake in a plastic cake carrier. She had piped the coffee cream and caramel icing into little rosettes around the generous topping of almonds. This is stunning, I said, my eyes big. I had never made a cake so beautiful, or so well. I handed it to my partner, who waved at Molly. He had seen her a few times when he picked up takeout dinners. I gave her the still warm bread. I hope you enjoy it, I said. It didn't rise very well. I was being redundant at this point. It'll be fine, Molly responded good-naturedly. We'll see each other soon. We waved our goodbyes. Sweet Lemon Rolls I made Yossi Arefi's Lemon Rolls, a recipe she had shared on the Instagram stories for New York Times Cooking. 
I had zested and squeezed the juice out of an aging lemon and placed the small containers in the refrigerator. It had been a few days. I had waited to try the recipe because I didn't have confectioner sugar. There was no need to go to the grocery store for one item. The zest looked a bit dehydrated, and I didn't have nearly enough lemon juice for the required amount. But I made the rolls anyway. As I measured seven grams of yeast, I saw that we were almost out. We had about a couple of grams left. Our neighbor had finally returned. He had asked us to take in his mail for a few days. My partner texted him. We waited, and then I went downstairs. I've never made this recipe before, I warned as I gave two rolls to him. My partner had given him the corner pieces, which had bloomed more and looked more beautiful. The ones in the middle did not seem to rise as much. Did you go see family? Yeah, I went to see my sister in the suburbs, he said. I just had to get out for a bit. That night, we chatted for a bit longer. We revealed that each of us had a friend or family who had tested positive for COVID. They were people we haven't seen since the state of emergency. Both of us tried to say comforting things, but in our uncertainty, we ended up saying nothing. That was Krista Totora reading Anna Nguyen's The Bread Did Not Rise. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself unraveling? Do you know that these bones were always mine? Where before this, where before this was I traveling? Was this always? Was this always by design? Cause I can't get my shit together in this airplane bathroom. I'm wondering why. I haven't seen. Myself before naked lights and sleepless nights. I'm trying to remember, but the contents of my chest are down there on the floor. Me 
trust we've all been taking the time to check in on our friends through all of this. In all this isolation and uncertainty, things can get pretty lonely. And while it takes effort, I think it's hard to stress the importance or the impact of just reaching out to say hello. Ted Clyde reached out to his old friend Charlie back when things were just starting to get bad. They took a walk around the empty streets of Chicago while they caught up. And that's when the real impact of this pandemic started to hit Ted not just the impact on the businesses, but on the people who run them. Here's Sam Slaughter reading Ted Clyde's The Virus. I called Charlie when I left for my daily quarantine walk. He's been taking Mondays off from the restaurant, some weeks Tuesdays as well, though they're reserved for time with his wife, a paramedic, whose work has become even more exhausting in recent months. They spend Tuesdays checking in with each other, taking a day to be together in an otherwise hectic week. When he answered, he was running around Restaurant Depot and I wasn't surprised. When he was my chef, he was always working on his day off in some capacity, checking in with his Sue or GM, 
putting out fires via email, sketching out specials, or visiting purveyors. I chided him for not taking the day for himself, as I always do. Charlie is a young man with drive and talent and doesn't need to flaunt his work ethic, and I told him so in much plainer words. He informed me that he was only there to pick up some baking supplies for his wife for her birthday. He may have grabbed a couple things for the restaurant as well. After BSing for a minute, he asked what I was up to, and in his short, clipped, semi-southern accent said, I'll be there in 30 minutes, Teddy. Text you when I'm 5 or 10 out. 25 minutes later, we were staring at each other across the intersection at Ashland and Addison, cold hands and pockets, masks on. It was a bit nippy for the time of year, even in Chicago. The wind was blowing in from the northeast, sweeping over the cold waters of Lake Michigan, winding and funneling its way through the gridded streets, and hitting us head-on as we walked east down Addison in intermittent sun. Charlie and I met nine years ago after a busy service in one of Chicago's up-and-coming brew pubs. He was a few years out of culinary school, working the line, though soon to rise through the ranks. I was an interloper. I had been tending bar on and off for years and took a busing job to get in at this new pub. After a year, I found myself behind the bar, then left to travel, then got back behind the bar, and eventually worked my way into management. Charlie slogged it out and became sous-chef, and then executive chef, and we found ourselves working together as closing managers several nights a week. We'd wrap up things in the office, head down to the dark bar, pour beers for the kitchen guys, and then slide into a couple of bar stools, bourbons in front of us, and feel the adrenaline fade, the night service seeping into our veins like some leaden IV drip. I left the restaurant first. I was spoiled and burnt, unsatisfied with my personal life, and I used the restaurant as an excuse for most of my problems. I moved on to a worse situation, found a better one, and eventually took some time off from the industry altogether. Charlie bought a house an hour and a half outside of the city, and 18 months after I left, decided he couldn't hack the commute on top of his demanding schedule and moved on. He took a gig as a sous at a yet-to-open, farm-to-table, chef-driven, comfort-food-focused restaurant in an affluent suburban downtown area. Having watched the rise of post-Bourdain foodie culture drown my city in middling, buzzword-oriented concepts, I was cynical and a bit dismissive in the most polite way, but I instinctively trusted Charlie, and I was pulling for him and the chef owner to make it work. Charlie's been there almost two years now, through all the peaks and valleys, turnover and tweaks that go along with opening a new place, and as things started to settle and profits started to grow, the virus threw a wrench into Hobart. As we walked up North Clark Street, the wind attacking us from all sides as we crossed the angled intersections, we didn't address the virus directly. We marveled at the long block of shuttered bars and businesses, commenting on how strange it was to see that section of Clark Street devoid of Cubs fans spilling out onto busy sidewalks on an early May day. We reminisced about the many waves of gentrification that have washed over the area around Wrigley Field, remembering fondly, if not accurately, its drunken, sloppy, dingy, frat house college bar vibe that has since been replaced by a more corporate party culture. The three-story mega bars, high-end hotel, and big restaurant groups branded flagship spots drawing a more affluent, if not discerning crowd. We weren't passing judgment, just making note. Things change. I've always known Charlie as a frenetic, driven ball of energy running on pure inertia long after most cooks sink into their bar stools. He was the kind of chef that led by example, willing to jump on the line and teach someone what they should be doing rather than scream at them. He wanted to be in the past during a busy service, 
finishing plates, ensuring quality, and keeping tabs on his cooks. He would also be the first one to delegate when the time was right, willing to give you a shot if you thought you could handle it. Several nights he handed me the expediting hat in the middle of a busy Saturday dinner service, and with an encouraging word, would bound out of the kitchen and off to some other task. He knew I could do it, and I never let him down. As we walked west, though, he was hesitant to talk about work. Though he often ran his body down over the course of a long week, I could hear the fatigue in his voice. Like most places, they pivoted quickly to carry out and delivery as dine-in operations were shuttered. They did their best to keep staff active for as long as possible, but as stay-at-home orders were extended and the reality of the bottom line became clear, made the decision to cut down to a skeleton crew. Charlie and the owner arrived and worked every day, rotating two sets of cooks in and out during the week to shore up service during busy times. Front of house managers would man the door for pickup as well as provide delivery service. They became more active on social media and decided to keep lunch service running. Anything to keep the ground they'd gained in the community, to stay relevant. Charlie was tired from Sunday's service. They had put together a successful carryout package for Easter and decided to offer something similar for Mother's Day and got slammed. They had fallen behind during the beginning of service, staggering pickups as best they could due to last-minute orders they tried to accommodate. They didn't have the luxury of buying the kitchen some time by offering guests a cocktail or a free appetizer. You couldn't do that with curbside pickup. Being professionals, they turned a rocky start into a lucrative and successful service, but Charlie wasn't talking about it like we used to. There was no giddy, euphoric sense of accomplishment for grinding through another tough shift. No sly smile of relief, knowing that he barely made it through service. He was subdued. Checking his phone as we walked and made small talk, he was pleased with the feedback they had received from customers, showing a glimpse of satisfaction, but his lack of enthusiasm was telling. As we walked under the spotty canopy of newly budding trees, talk turned towards the future, to possible collaborative projects, past ideas, and personal goals. It was good to discuss something beyond the current situation. It was good to know we both still carried some hope for the future, if not for the industry, then at least ourselves. But I was worried about how the present reality would affect Charlie as this played out. In an industry that has always had high rates of burnout, suicide, drug use, and mental health issues, we don't know yet what the toll will be on the people who tried to keep their places alive so all of the furloughed servers, bartenders, hosts, bussers, runners, and myriad support staff would have something to return to. What happens to the chefs who toil in the kitchen six days a week with no staff to commiserate with, cooking food for an invisible and increasingly fickle public? What happens when chefs walk out, night after night, to an empty dining room after the same grinding long hours to no smiling satisfied faces, no bartenders to offer them a drink, no relieved wait staff tallying the night's tips? I imagine there's a lot of chefs wondering what they're running themselves ragged for. I wonder if Charlie was one of them. The big boys will survive. The corporate chains and mega restaurant groups have support systems in place and access to capital. A group of industry leaders came together to form the Independent Restaurant Coalition, lobbying Congress on behalf of the independent operator. I appreciate the ideology and mission statement and agree with their assessment of the situation, but with household named celebrity chefs and some of the country's largest independent restaurant groups leading the effort, I wonder whose definition of independent we're looking at. Some of the bigger groups are behind the wall of mega bars and flagship operations that line the corner we passed on Clark Street. Some of them immediately furloughed or laid off their entire staff at the onset of stay-at-home orders so they could take their time to assess the situation and respond accordingly. 
many independent operators didn't have that option. I do believe the IRC have the small operations in mind as they continue to lobby on their behalf. I think they understand the importance of the neighborhood tavern and grill or single owner operator to the ecosystem of their city's dining scene. I also know that if there's an empty space to fill, someone will fill it, and I wonder who will be best poised to do that if and when business comes back. There's no question that the industry was heading for a correction. There's no question that inequality and inequities need to be discussed. There's no question that the business models restaurants have operated for so many years are inherently unstable. If the Thomas Kellers, Gabrielle Hamiltons, and David Changs of the world are appealing to Congress, writing op-eds, shuttering long-standing institutions and lamenting the future, we should be worried. I worry about these larger themes, and I wonder how the industry as a whole will adjust to the change thrust upon it. But I'm also concerned for the people still grinding it out for their livelihoods. The people who still believe in the most recent version of the industry they once took great pleasure from. Those who right now have no time to imagine another one. As Charlie and I said our goodbyes, standing several feet apart, he offhandedly mentioned that he would really like to cook a big steak that evening. Something thick and marbled, simply seasoned, seared and tossed in an oven to finish. I laughed, thinking how often he would randomly interject with an idea for a new flavor combination, or while talking about grabbing a hot dog, pause and lament how long it had been since he made sausage, like some ex-jock wistfully recalling the glory days. As I headed back to my car, I thought about how much Charlie loved to cook. I sincerely hoped that would be enough to carry him through. Not 
on my way Face another day Our darkness only stays At night time In the morning it will fade away Daylight is good at arriving at the right time It's not always gonna be this great All things must pass All things must pass away All things must pass All things must pass away The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. Have you been baking bread? It seems like everyone and their mothers decided to make sourdough starter the minute the stay-at-home orders went into place. And seemingly overnight, our social media feeds were filled with pictures of perfect loaves. Elizabeth Helmick decided to get in on the action too, but as she discovered, nursing a living, breathing, bubbling, yeasty organism to health isn't as easy as the Instagram pics make it out to be. No one warns you when you decide to make sourdough bread that a flour and water infused kraken that demands constant attention and adoration is about to take over your life. This decision was made at the onset of the pandemic when news people were still deciding exactly which level of panic to dial up for the largely oblivious population in America. With the world in such turmoil, I couldn't resist the primal instinct to go back to basics and create one of the simplest foods that every culture and nation has been eating for 30,000 years. I wasn't the only person with a newfound interest in making sourdough. Seemingly overnight, fledgling bread bakers bubbled up to form a collective of fanatics, rivaled only by potterheads and D&D players. We spoke in codes and formulas known exclusively to others in our not-so-secret club. Hydration is mentioned on the down low, unless you've worked your way up to the bragging rights of epic, godly bread, so holy that anything you slather on will drop right through. During my initial online research, I boldly and naively assume there's only one way to achieve my goal, and I'm going to learn it. Right now. I'm barraged with so much information, I need to close the laptop and down some ibuprofen. I'm in fourth grade all over again, scouring encyclopedias for knowledge about growth rates of mold that'll win me the science fair. Finally, I decided on a source that seems trustworthy. She has a book coming out on a YouTube channel, and these days that's about as legit as you can get. I'm going to ride in this fermentation rodeo till I'm thrown off. I put the news on pause. Anything other than an occasional peak causes a downward anxiety spiral. Nightmares that play on repeat about human contact start to disappear around the time I learn it's best to food shop first thing in the morning to win the lottery. Oh yes, organic bread flour will be wiped out if you arrive after 10 a.m. Evidently, flour was the second thing to go. 
Soon, the only rising chaos I'm focused on is in my kitchen. Making a sourdough starter that didn't just stare back and ask, what now, took nearly two weeks. I named mine Agatha. I have more conversations with Agatha than I'll ever admit to. At night, I wrap the robin's egg blue pottery bowl that's her home in a tea towel so she doesn't catch a chill. After a week, I grow impatient and ignore the wisdom of masters in such matters of float tests and growth. Agatha had to be ready. That afternoon, I squirrel away from my original source due to distractibility levels being at an all-time high to follow another recipe. I need a sticky, gooey mess on my kitchen island for 30 minutes. The gut punch of something's not right here deflates me. The dough's texture never changes. Agatha's first offspring yields a loaf that never rose and could have served as a backup discus in the summer 2020 Olympic Games that never happened. Still, I posted a picture on Instagram since I was proud as all get out despite the small fact that no one was ever going to eat this bread. I decide at least part of the fault must be with the original directions, which, if you were paying attention, you'll note I didn't actually follow. I watch another 5 or 20 YouTube videos because now I'm hell-bent on making edible bread. I would not be defeated by microorganisms and their finicky behaviors. I would hone my flute skills and charm the next loaf into rising from its basket like an entranced rattlesnake, except with less threat of immediate death. Several days pass. Late one morning, Agatha looks effervescent, like she's had a few too many mimosas since breakfast. I poke a tentative finger in. She has that marshmallow-like consistency, one of the things-you're-doing-wrong-with-your-starter-you-dumbass videos informed me was a good sign of her being ready to conceive. I fill a glass with water and trepidatiously drop in a teaspoon's worth of Agatha's gold. I can't believe it. It floats. Huzzah. Feeling under pressure, I quickly assemble the ingredients and carefully weigh everything on my digital scale. I reread the ingredients list from the new recipe every couple of minutes. I set timers. I hope paranoia isn't contagious to dough. That night, I gently shape the dough into loaf form and pray for some voodoo magic of the yeast gods to work in my favor as I tuck Agatha's second offspring into its banneton basket and place it into the fridge like it's a piece of hand-blown glass. The next morning, I read the recipe five more times, ignore an internal debate about temperature and oven spring, and do exactly as the recipe dictates. Flipping the banneton upside down, the loaf plops into my beloved cast iron skillet. I use a razor blade to score some leaves over the raised ridges left by the basket. A footed cast iron pot I've kept for decoration that looks as though it'll cook some fine hassenpfeffer over a campfire is placed over top. It's ill-fitting, but works as a lid if you ignore the gaping holes on either side of the handle. I lower the rack to fit the non-Dutch oven into my oven and set it to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. 55 minutes later, I remove the cover and fall in love. I have made sourdough. I take 50 pictures and post 10 to social media since there's no one around to jump up and down with me. High on delusions of grandeur, I add a tongue-in-cheek caption that I am taking pre-orders for tomorrow. 59 minutes later, I fry up two eggs that watch me smother butter and jam over too many pieces of bread, joyously savoring each exquisite bite of fermented bliss. They don't judge. That was Lexi Harvey reading Elizabeth Helmick's The Sourdough Chronicles. You can find that story at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. I remember-
There's been a lot of chatter in the midst of this pandemic about sheltering the immune compromised so that the rest of us can go back to work and life as normal. But unfortunately for many, it's not that simple. Michelle Tom lives in Australia, but her husband's parents live on the other side of the globe in Canada. So when things started locking down, Michelle had to do what so many of us are struggling to do. Find ways to protect our parents, even though we cannot be with them. Here's Tracy Johnston Crum reading Michelle Tom's Saving Susan. 18 years ago, I didn't understand why food was so important to my new husband. It's just fuel, I said, frustrated at each lengthy food court meditation, every laborious menu contemplation. It all took so much longer than I thought necessary. But in hindsight, the root of our differing attitudes to food should have been obvious. Mike was raised over his parents' Chinese restaurant in Ontario, Canada where he ordered dinner off a menu each night. And I was born and raised in New Zealand, where an unimaginative protein and three boiled vegetables were offered by my mother. For her 26th birthday, my father gave her a cookbook with the inscription, with the hope of better things to come, scrawled inside the front cover. Food was good in my husband's world, a joyful celebration of culture and caring. In mine, it was functional, utilitarian, lacking in diversity. We viewed the dining table from opposite ends of a gastronomic appreciation scale. When Mike and I met online in the mid-90s, food was just one symptom of our tangle of cross-cultural differences, complicated by the 14,700 kilometers that separated us. The next few years were challenging, as we fought to find a way to make it work. Our attention swerved between immigration concerns and family opposition to our relationship, But we pushed on and married in 2002 on the veranda of a friend's house with a clear view to the snowy tops of the Southern Alps in New Zealand. Mike's parents didn't make the trip from Canada to our wedding. They could think of no woman worse than me for their son, and their absence was how they made their opposition known. To them, I was a walking checklist of shortcomings. Older, divorced, the mother of two daughters— and resident on the other side of the world. They wanted a virgin. They wanted a Chinese girl. They even offered to go to China to find one for Mike, if he would ditch me. Spirits are urgent. They're very concerned for your mother-in-law, said Tui, frowning. I'd booked my appointment with my psychic months earlier, and it would be my last outing before we locked down. COVID-19 was spreading worldwide, and as soon as my session began... The relevance of the timing hit home. Spirits crowded in on her to talk to me, she said, most of them from my husband's side, and I wondered if this meant I was finally accepted into his Chinese family. Even after we were married, even after I gave birth to two sons, my husband's grandmother never allowed me to cross the threshold of her home and placed a curse on me for good measure. The old woman had died a few years before, and now she was imploring me, through the veil of death, to ensure the safety of her daughter. I'm not sure if my Chinese in-laws ever really accepted me. The closest I ever came was on a visit to Toronto's Chinatown when, as we wandered through packed streets lined with displays of unfamiliar vegetables, I told my husband's mother how much I loved Don Tat. She had giggled, pleased her white daughter-in-law showed such good taste, and, early the next morning, she was on the threshold of our hotel room extending a glossy white baker's box. I realized she had risen early to buy me a dozen dantat, 
fresh from the Chinese bakery in the street below. I knew the still-warm offering represented more than the gift of a breakfast, more than sweet, eggy perfection in a flaky pastry case. I looked up from the box into my mother-in-law's smiling eyes and knew the egg tarts represented love. There's a chance they were even an apology. Spirits say to tell her to stay home. She's at risk of lung issues and her energy wavers in and out, which usually means she might be lost in the coming months. Maybe because of COVID-19, maybe something unrelated, but best to be safe. My father-in-law was already unwell, on dialysis every other day for kidney failure. Also blind, he relied heavily on his wife for sustenance and physical guidance. They were tiny people, only a little over four feet tall, with fine bones like birds. Mike has his mother's smile, a lopsided joy that is as contagious as her laugh. She loves with food, and food gives her a reason to go out to the supermarket just across from where she lives. So close, so easy, yet so infectious. We hadn't finished eating that first dozen dantat when the second arrived the next morning. The tarts piled higher on the counter as the week wore on, supplemented each day by yet another early morning delivery. I looked to my husband for support, but knowing better than to argue with his mother about food, he smiled sheepishly and shrugged at me. Eat them fresh, commanded Susan, delighted to find a food that transcended our differences. I gestured at the growing mound of pastries and argued we had enough tarts to keep us going for a month, but she was insistent. Fresh is better. You eat these, she said, as she thrust yet another white box through the open door. Spirits kept insisting, Twee said. If my mother-in-law became ill, my father-in-law would be bed-bound. Later, I played Mike the recording of my reading, and his face creased. We had earlier discussed our concern about his parents surviving the pandemic, but with our heads together over the phone, we locked eyes and realized we hadn't done enough. Mike researched online shopping services in his hometown and found a couple of places still making deliveries. We put through a call to his parents. Hi, honey. Mike's mom chirped on speaker in her heavy accent. Everybody okay? This was her standard query. She was always a little anxious. She couldn't see what or how much we were eating. Have you had lunch? She asked, right on cue. Mike asked if she understood how serious the virus thing is. We explained how hand-washing was their best defense. I suggested singing happy birthday twice, that it was a handy way of knowing how long they should scrub. I don't think she knows that song, Mike said to me, quietly. Another small reminder of our cross-cultural divide. Susan, I said, this thing is hurting old people, people over 80. She never confided her age, but I knew I was in the ballpark. Oh, she said, and I imagined her in her tiny kitchen, a chicken poaching on the stove, her brow creased just like her son's. I didn't realize it's so serious. She's quiet again as the implications settled. We knew she went across the road each day to buy rye bread, the only one her husband can eat without spiking his sugars. If you get sick, and then Dad gets sick, you can see how that is going to be bad for everyone. Yes, I see, 
she said, and I could almost hear her thinking. I explained how, if she picks up the virus and transmits it to her sick husband, how devastating that will be for his health. We called to keep her safe, but I knew this was how to reach her, to make her understand. Her sole mission was to preserve the life of a man who had already lived far longer than expected. It is his 15th year on dialysis, and he was a living tribute to the care and dedication of a wonderful medical system, but also a wife who believed she could keep him alive so long as she has a rye bread sandwich in her purse. And it turned out that damned rye bread was out of stock. We, we didn't know if it was hoarders or just bad luck, but Susan hadn't been able to buy any for several days. I stay home when Mike and the boys visit his parents in Canada these days, but I am always at the unpacking of the food suitcase that accompanies them back to Australia, where we live now. After almost 20 years in this marriage, built on the tradition of good food, it would be rude not to. This is for you, Dumpling, Mike said, as he handed me a container from his mother's kitchen after the last trip in January. Even my nickname is one of his favorite foods. In the plastic box were a dozen sour cream glazed donuts, a rare treat that came out of an oven half a world away 20 hours before. I pictured him in his mother's kitchen, packing the donuts between sheets of waxed paper, and understood more than I thought possible how food is love. I no longer question this family's food obsession like I used to. I try not to complain when my husband takes two turns around a food court to decide what to order. I certainly don't complain when Susan calls to let Mike know there is an important date on the lunar calendar that requires us to eat chicken for dinner. We order Korean chicken takeout for good luck. We asked Susan to find a rye bread wrapper and describe it to us. Her English was halting, and it took a couple of tries before we matched it to a Canadian brand online. Mike located a store with stocks as we talked, and the enormity of the pandemic seemed to have finally descended on his mother. There was a friend, or maybe the man who drove them to dialysis, could pop into the supermarket we found online to collect the bread. She wouldn't go inside, she assured us. And then she remembered one of the women at the supermarket over the road is especially kind to her that she drove her home in the heat of the summer, and maybe she can drop off a loaf or two. Now she was thinking, using her community to save her husband. Mike loaded the things his mother used every day into the online shopping cart, the rye bread, chicken, apples, and broccoli. He wanted to press submit to finalize the order. But she said no. She had enough food. For someone who feeds people with love, she eats so very little. Susan promised to make some calls the next day to organize the bread drop-off and to leave a shopping list in the mailbox for a friend to fill at the supermarket. We seemed to have gotten through to her, and I felt like high-fiving my husband. After, I asked Mike, Do you think the Chinese spirits are happy now? Yeah, I think so, he said, smiling. Do you want to order takeout to celebrate?
Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Soccer Mommy, Gordy, George Harrison, Becca Mankari, U2, Wojciech Golchuski, Hans Zimmer, Ian William Craig, Oliver Patrice Weider, Ensemble O, Sylvain Chaveau, Stefan Guerin, Otley Ovarson, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, Tim Hecker and Brian McBride. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPBMLP Asheville, always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon.